all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is the original Southern Remedy, where the doctors are always in. I'm Dr. Robert Brodell, professor and chair of the Department of Dermatology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Today's show features two pediatric dermatologists. Start thinking about questions, anything related to children and their skin. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Germany has stopped flights deporting rejected asylum seekers to Afghanistan following the large bomb attack in Kabul this morning that killed at least 90 people and injured more than 400 others. But as Esme Nicholson reports, the suspension is only temporary. Speaking to the German media, chairman of the CDU Domestic Affairs Committee, Armin Schuster, said collective deportations to Afghanistan were halted until further notice because following the attack, embassy staff in Kabul have, quote, more important things to do than prepare to repatriate rejected Afghan asylum seekers. Schuster says that group deportations shall resume as soon as possible. Germany has taken in over a million asylum seekers since 2015, but since December last year, it has increasingly sent back Afghans. Interior Minister Thomas de Mazier insists that much of Afghanistan, including parts of Kabul, is safe. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. President Trump has tweeted that he will make an announcement over the next few days about whether the U.S. will stay in the Paris Climate Agreement. There are reports the United States will pull out of the accord, although that's not been confirmed by NPR. He met with Environmental Protection Agency Director Scott Pruitt this week, who is opposed to the accord, and is meeting with Secretary of State Rex Tillerson today. He's a supporter of the Climate Accord. Comedian Kathy Griffin has apologized for posing, uh, posting herself holding a decapitated head in the likeness of President Trump. As NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, the image was denounced by both liberals and conservatives. Anderson Cooper called it disgusting. He co-hosts an annual New Year's Eve special with Kathy Griffin. Mitt Romney called it repugnant. After posting the photograph of her holding the severed head resembling President Trump, Kathy Griffin was trending on Twitter. In a video posted Tuesday evening, Griffin asked for forgiveness. I sincerely apologize. I went way too far. Early this morning, President Trump tweeted that his 11-year-old son was having a hard time with the image and called it sick. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. A man from Pennsylvania was arrested outside the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. early this morning. Police said they had a tip that 43-year-old Brian Moles had made threatening remarks, although it's not clear what the comments were. Police found an assault rifle, handgun, and 90 rounds of ammunition in his vehicle. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Browser. 
Today's incident is, a, is an important reminder that when you see something, uh, it is important uh, to say something uh, to an official. Uh, here in the district, we take very seriously when anyone threatens uh, the use of harm in our city. And Moles was taken into custody. Wall Street is trading lower at this hour. The Dow is down 24 points at 21,005. The Nasdaq is down 13 points at 61.89. The S&P 500 is down four points at 24.08. This is NPR News from Washington. In China, officials have arrested one labor activist and two others are missing. That's according to a U.S.-based labor advocacy group. The three were investigating a Chinese company that makes shoes carrying the Ivanka Trump label. The advocacy group, China Labor Watch, reports the activists had been looking into labor conditions at factories that produce shoes for Trump's brand. With just over a week until the U.K.'s general election, a newly released poll has prompted a collapse in the country's currency, as Willem Marx reports from London. Polling organization YouGov correctly predicted the result of last year's EU referendum. And now, in the final days of an election campaign focused on Brexit, its latest projections show the June 8th vote could result in a hung parliament, with neither major party able to form a majority. Prime Minister Theresa May said she called the snap election last month to strengthen her mandate during Brexit negotiations with Europe. But in the past couple of weeks, May has stumbled and her party's lead has narrowed. This new poll is the first to focus on a seat-by-seat constituency basis and indicates the Conservatives will fall short of the necessary 326-seat majority in the House of Commons. Such a result would constitute a massive failure for May and could significantly complicate Brexit. That renewed uncertainty prompted the pound to fall half a percent against both the dollar and the euro. For NPR News, I'm Bill Marks in London. Crude oil prices are trading lower at this hour, down more than 3%, losing $1.59 at $48.07 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. And again, Wall Street is also trading lower at this hour. The Dow is down 21 points, the Nasdaq down 12, S&P 500 down 3. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, celebrating 20 years of grant making and launching a new effort to advance cures for sickle cell disease, and the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Southern Remedy, where the doctors are always in. Please think of some questions about children and skin disease. You can call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, and while we're waiting for those first calls to come in, I'd like to introduce you to our two guests. I have Julie Wyatt, a dermatologist who practices at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and Dr. Stephanie Jacks, who also practices at the University of Mississippi. Together, they have over 25 years of experience taking care of children with skin problems. 
So, Julie, what is a common thing that you see in your practice in children related to their skin? Good morning, Bob. Yes, molluscum is an infection of the skin that many parents are dealing with these days. It's about, I think, 11 times more um, common than it was maybe just a few decades ago. It is um, similar um, infection to the common wart that we all grew up around, but these look different. They're um, a little smoother in shape, and they tend to... um, grow in clusters and can also spread with eczema surrounding them. So pretty bothersome for child and and parents. What do we do about those, Julie? Well, you can do nothing, and that's what most people do. Um, you can. It is a self-limiting disease, meaning eventually your immune system will clear the virus. But the problem is that they become so numerous and obvious and can also um, have eczema that's itchy and bothersome to the kids. So in dermatology, a lot of times we'll treat them with an agent called cantharidin or what I call the, to the kids bug juice that causes the skin to blister and pushes the wart um, off. And Stephanie, you are the only fellowship-trained, board-certified pediatric dermatologist in the state of Mississippi. And I know Julie helped to recruit you. Welcome to Mississippi over the past year or so since you've been here. What is a common thing you've seen in your practice that kids bring to the office? Sure. So probably the most common thing that I see in my practice is eczema. Um, Eczema is unfortunately quite common in children, and it can start even as early as infancy. Um, It often starts with dry, itchy places on the skin. And then as the child scratches at those dry, itchy places, it develops into a red, rough patch on the skin. You can do some things at home to help alleviate those symptoms. So, for instance, taking a bath every day with a really gentle, mild soap um, that doesn't have any scent added to it. You can use good, thick, creamy moisturizers that you can get at the store. Again, you want something unscented, and you can use that every day after the bath. And then there are some over-the-counter steroids that you can try, so things like hydrocortisone. If the child's skin doesn't improve with those basic measures, then you can ask your pediatrician or your family doctor for some help. And then in the more severe cases that are even more complicated, often the pediatrician or the family doctor will turn to a dermatologist for help. And we try to um, help in those more complicated cases. Thank you, Stephanie. Now, keep in mind, you can call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 672 7464. And I see we have our first caller, Eric from Liberty. We lost Eric. So, Eric, please call back. We want to get you on. I know that you had a question, and we would like to answer that question, but I unfortunately am not too used to doing this, and I've pushed the wrong button. Um, Julie. Tell us something else that we commonly see in the clinic in kids with skin problems. Well, one of the most common things, and I know that Stephanie can speak more to this, are hemangiomas. So these are birthmarks that occur, the most common benign growth of the skin in children. And they used to be called strawberry hemangiomas or strawberry birthmarks, and um, pretty common in newborns or occurring in the first few weeks of life. And I think, Stephanie, I've kind of turned this over to her at this point. She sees more. 
I, I do see a lot of hemangiomas, and I, and I have to say it's one of my favorite things to, to see in, in my clinic and to treat. So the majority of hemangiomas do not need treatment. So the typical growth pattern for hemangiomas is that they show up in the first few weeks of life, they grow in the first few months of life, and then by the time the baby is about a year old, they hit what we call a plateau phase where they will just stay the same size for a while. And then eventually they go away on their own. So about 20% are gone by age two, 30% are gone by age three, 40% are gone by age four and so on to where in most cases we can reassure the parents that the hemangioma will eventually fade away. It might leave behind a little redness or a little scarring on the skin, but usually this, this really isn't too much of a worry. Now, in situations where the hemangioma is particularly large, it may start to stretch the skin to the point where the skin can't keep up and the baby can get a little ulceration on top. And that is something that we worry a lot about because that can be uh, quite painful to the baby. The other situation where we get worried about these hemangiomas is if they're in a, a, a bad location. So, for instance, if you have a hemangioma that's near the eye, you, you worry about that because the hemangioma could start to push on the eye and affect the baby's vision. Or if the hemangioma is on the nose, it could start to grow so large that it distorts the shape of the nose. So those are obviously situations where we want to act sooner rather than later. And fortunately, we have a, a great treatment for hemangiomas. It's called propranolol. It is a medicine that we... Um, that we use fairly frequently for those ones that are more complicated. Now, we, d- we don't use this in every hemangioma that comes into clinic because, uh, you know, it, there are some risks associated with every medicine that we use, and we don't want to expose a baby to the risks of a medicine for, uh, for a, a lesion on the skin that's going to go away without leaving behind any problems. So we save that for the hemangiomas that are really causing uh, complications. And there are some fancy laser treatments that are used on these children sometimes. Isn't that right, Stephanie? Well, so really the the main indication for, for laser for hemangiomas is once we've allowed the hemangioma to regress and go down in size, if there's any redness left behind on the skin, then you can go in later on and help to, to zap away that redness with the laser. Sometimes you can use the laser as well for those ulcerated hemangiomas because it helps the skin start to grow back over the top of that hemangioma. Really, the the bigger um, problem where we use um, lasers in young babies is for what we call a port wine stain. And a port wine stain behaves very differently from a hemangioma. So typically, a baby is born with a port wine stain. It has sort of this darker kind of purple color to it. It's usually flat on the skin. And in, in that situation, the, the port wine stain, we don't expect it to go through this growth period followed by this period where it then gets smaller and shrinks away. So a port wine stain is more of a static lesion. It stays the same. And so um, the laser can be quite helpful in, in terms of taking that color out of the skin. Very good. And um, Julie, sometimes those st- uh, color red-colored stains on the skin might be right in the center of the forehead called angel kiss or on the back of the neck called stork bite. Tell us about those. Well, that is a very common, quote, birthmark that you see in children, um, which has to do just persistence of um, embryologic blood vessels that kind of um, stay hang around a little bit longer in some people. And they're common and don't need treatment. Typically, they lighten with age, and as most of us have experienced in our lives, with our own children. 
You can even have even have them in a complex where you have maybe one right between your eyes, kind of some in the scalp, at the back of the scalp, and even down the spine. And that's even shown to be safe if you have no other findings in the skin. Now, Eric, we want you to call back if we didn't answer your question. I saw a little comment that you had made before we cut you off that someone had a lesion around their eye, a young child, and we may have answered that. Anyone else would like to call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. And we'll be back after a break. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. Normally, I don't recommend eavesdropping, but feel free to join in on my conversations. Our guests this week are the editors of the New Mississippi Encyclopedia, Charles Reagan Wilson and Ted Ombe. You're able to deal with such a variety of information. Uh, and, and a lot of it is very somber and serious, uh, but a lot of it is, is offbeat. Some of it is offbeat and quirky, and that, but that's, that's human life. Sundays at 5.30 and Thursdays at 10 on MPB. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And this is Bob Rodell taking over for Rick DeShazo while he's on vacation. Once or twice a year, we let him go for a very short period of time, but he'll be back before you know it. Now, we got an email about a news story in the national news that was questioning whether certain sunscreens may or may not be safe in children. Stephanie, do you have any comments about that story? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's really important to talk about that since we live in Mississippi. We're we're very fortunate that we have warm weather so much of the year, but that does mean that that we and our children get exposed to the sun a lot. And I think it's really important to talk about this. So, you know, there there is some controversy out there regarding sunscreens um, and the use of sunscreens in children. I, I do recommend that uh, we, we use sunscreens in children, even young babies, obviously with 
little infants, you do want to try to keep them out of the sun as much as you can. Um, you know, once they get older and they're toddling around on their own, that's, that becomes a little bit more of a challenge. And in that situation, I recommend the use of sunscreens that have an SPF of at least 30. And I think the best ingredients to look for are the mineral blockers. The mineral blockers are titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. Now, when we talk about sunscreens, we often talk about the difference between the mineral blockers and the chemical blockers. The mineral blockers work by sitting on top of the skin and basically reflecting the sun's rays as they hit the skin, whereas the chemical blockers soak into the skin and try to absorb the sun's energy as it hits the skin. So you can imagine that the mineral blockers, it's almost like a layer of clothing. So that that works a lot better. And also, I think there's just fewer safety concerns with those sorts of sunscreens since they really more what they do is just sit on top of the skin as as an additional layer. Another thing that you can do for children is to look for um, sun protective clothing. And there are a lot of really cute uh, swimsuits out there that you can get at lots of different stores that basically have UV protection built into the clothing itself. So, you know, you can get all kinds of of, uh, swimsuits that actually cover a lot of the kid's skin. And that makes it a lot easier as a parent because then you're not trying to put so much sunscreen on so much area of the baby's skin. And then finally, just, you know, trying to stay out of the sun in those midday hours between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. I think is is a good idea as well, because that's when the sun's rays are the hottest and the strongest. And so just trying to find something else to do in the shade or indoors in those midday hours. Julie, any other thoughts about protecting our children from sunburn and the chronic effects of the sun? Yeah, so Stephanie, you mentioned sun protective clothing, which I think is so important, having four children and actually watching them swim at swim team this morning. um, It's really hard to be good at sunscreen. A lot of times our applied SPFs are much lower than what actually is um, labeled on the bottle. So you may have an SPF of 30 or 50, but the way that you apply it and the amount of the volume that you apply it in is probably more around 10 or 12. And so that's that's why you say, I went to the beach and I used sunscreen and I still got all the sun. That's because it wasn't applied effectively. So it's much it's much better if you can actually cover the skin with a, a UV protectant um, type of fabric. And you will have, spend less time overall applying sunscreen while you're out having fun with your family. Very good. And Justin from Mobile, you have a question for us today. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Welcome. Hey, um, I had a question about a particular soap that I was uh, using for my child. I have a two-year-old son. Uh, we use a product called uh, Eucerin. I don't know if that's okay to mention on the radio. But, it is. Uh, it seems to do okay. You know, we, we've done well to stay away from the scented products. He has eczema. <clears throat> uh, we just got through. We're getting through dealing with a ringworm. So that's been real fun. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But uh, I wanted to know if like a products like Dove, you know, as long as it's not scented, that's got a lot of moisturizers in it, apparently. So I wonder if those products that I'm using, Eucerin products like Dove, if they're acceptable. So, Stephanie, tell us about your favorite moisturizers and mild soaps. You know, I think I think there's a lot of good brands out there. So, I, you know, I try not to pick any one particular brand. I think the Eucerin products are good for most people. Dove actually has a new baby line out that I've, I've looked at the ingredients on that, and it, it all looks really good. Dove soap in general, if you're just looking at the the original line of Dove soap, you have to be careful what you buy because a lot of the Dove soap does have perfume added to it. The Dove sensitive bar soap is safe. 
It's interesting, though, the Dove Sensitive Body Wash has some fragrance added to it. And it, it doesn't have a strong perfume smell, but for really sensitive children, even just that little bit of fragrance added to it can be a problem. And the problem, Julie, is contact dermatitis? That's correct. So when you have um, a propensity for eczema, you have tiny cracks in your skin so that anything that you come in contact with, you're much more likely to be sensitized to that in an allergy reaction. And so we call that allergic contact dermatitis. And so babies with eczema are more likely to get that and it also complicates their course. Justin, have we helped you? Yes, that's been great information. Thank you very much for taking my call. Okay, great. And we have another uh, email that came in that asked about warts in children. And what is the best way to get rid of warts in children that may not be so painful as some of the other treatments we have? Julie? Well, there's the slow, painless way, and that would be to use a salicylic acid product where you diligently apply that medication to the wart Um, with or without covering for days, weeks, maybe even months on end. And it's painless in the fact that you don't have to apply like a liquid nitrogen freezing type agent um, that that hurts. But it is is hard to be quite diligent with that and to make a difference in in some points. Um, There are also over-the-counter freezes, which I think that I see a a lot of people in my clinic that have used that and it hasn't worked, but it's some of that's probably bias. But the -the over-the-counter freeze is not equivalent to what we do in the clinic. And Stephanie, any other thoughts? Yeah, I agree with that. The, the one tip I would add is that if you have a particularly stubborn wart that you're trying to treat at home, um, I, I tell families to look for the corn pads. The corn pads actually have a, a stronger percentage of salicylic acid than the usual wart remover medication. So you can always try the corn pads over the counter. Now, if you have a wart that doesn't respond to these over-the-counter home remedy um, type treatments, Um, You know, you can always ask your physician about treatments. And then sometimes we do get referrals um, for warts that we treat in our clinic. And so we tend to use stronger treatments, like Julie mentioned, freezing with liquid nitrogen. That's a a fairly effective treatment, but in children it can be particularly challenging just because it is quite painful. And so you need a child who's able to cooperate and sit still while we apply that liquid nitrogen. We do have some other tricks up our sleeve. Um, Julie mentioned earlier the bug juice. So you can use that both for molluscum as well as for warts. And then for the really stubborn warts, we move into things like injecting with a substance called candida antigen or even using laser treatments to try to remove those warts. Stephanie. One other thing to yeah, add in the really. in the vein of um, treating warts with salicylic acid and covering it with maybe a corn pad, and people love home remedy, so here's one for you, is sometimes you can actually use electric duct tape with the salicylic acid or without, and when that's from, and it's not the, the cute kind with all the patterns on it, but the actual silver electric duct tape you'd find in your garage. And when that's pulled off the skin, it tape strips the skin and pulls some of that, which is where the, the virus is actually harbored. And so you can combine that with your salicylic acid and get pretty good results. Thanks, Julie. Now, Jeff from Natchez wrote us an email. What are the best diaper rash remedies? Are the paste still the best to handle that? Of the paste, what is the consensus recommendation? Sure. So, um, you know, when you're dealing with a diaper rash, I think you, you want to start first with just good diaper hygiene. So that's changing the baby frequently. Don't let them sit in a wet diaper or a, a soiled diaper um, for very long. So just frequent changes. 
And then I tell people to get a nice thick diaper cream. There's lots of brands out there. I tend to like the zinc oxide paste. Those are the the really thick white ones that can be a little difficult to apply. You have to kind of warm it up in your hand before you try to wipe it on the baby's bottom. And you want to put that on like frosting on a cake. So you want that baby's bottom to be completely white, like a frosted birthday cake. And then when you're changing those wet diapers, you don't want to try to remove all that frosting. You just want to kind of pat dry without doing any sort of aggressive wiping that might further irritate the skin. So just pat that wet diaper dye dry. Now, when you're dealing with a soiled diaper, obviously you have to do some, some more uh, a, a thorough cleaning there. Um, so lots and lots of diaper cream with every change, um, changing the baby frequently. One thing we do worry about in in some diaper rashes is the involvement of candida. So if you're starting to see a lot of redness and a lot of little bumps on the skin, particularly in the folds of skin, you might want to ask your doctor about the possibility of candida and whether they need a, a you know an additional cream applied to those areas. So you're using zinc oxide. Do not use icing from a cake. Don't use actual that. icing. No, right. no. So don't go grab the, the frosting from the actual cake. Right. You just want it to kind of kind of look like frosting on a cake. So I, I, I tell people that just so they know to go ahead and put it on there really thick. You don't really want to see that baby skin underneath. You just I've, want to see that thick frosting. I've got it. Stephanie and Julie, what about what diaper should they choose? Oh, that's a good question. Um you know, I have a, I'm brand loyal. I think every mom has sort of their brand they like to use. Um, some of the all brands I, I think um, that you may be like a store brand aren't quite as absorbent. Um, but most of the new diapers are really quality and, and very good. And what if somebody says they want to use cotton diapers, the old ones you had to launder? They're actually less absorbent than the new diapers. And so, I, you know, they make great looking um reusable diapers these days and if you're you know con you know environmentally conscious i think it's a good option but if you're using that just to help to decrease um diaper rash i don't think it's gonna be quite as effective and i'll, and I'll add too in, in my clinic i really don't see that much sensitivity to diapers themselves i think that's really quite rare to have a child be sensitive to the diaper i do sometimes see babies who are sensitive to the um, chemicals in the wipes mm-hmm. and so you know if you have a baby who has a stubborn diaper rash i would think about switching to a hypoallergenic wipe that doesn't have any perfume added to it. And then sometimes you you can even see um, allergies to the preservatives that are used in those diapers. And so um, I don't know if it's okay to use that, to mention a couple brands on the air, but but I'll say the Pampers Sensitive brand is is a fairly safe one that doesn't have some of those more... um, more sensitizing uh, preservatives, as well as the seventh generation brand. So if you're looking at for a, a brand of diaper wipe for a more sensitive baby, those are two that are that are fairly good. And I think you bring up a good point. In today's world, when we kind of like quick and easy, a lot of moms are using um, wipes, not only as for diaper changes, but also to wipe hands and faces. And just remember, the more that you use something like that, the more exposure people get and the more likely they are to create an allergy. So I think it would be just wiser to get a, a washcloth to, to wipe children's faces. Thanks, Julie. Now, Rachel from Columbus asks, how can you tell when a newborn has food or animal allergies? Because in a newborn, it's hard to read their symptoms. Challenging. Uh, yeah, so that is really hard. And, you know, in, in particularly difficult situations like that, we do ask for the help of our colleagues in allergy immunology. And so there there is some testing that you can do, but even the testing is a little challenging in young babies. I would say in, in really small babies, so less than six months of age, I, I, I tend not to see as much of a problem with exposure to things like pollens or trees or grasses or, or animals. Um, 
but but we do see babies sometimes who have allergies to um, their formula. And so getting the help of someone who can do some testing for, say, milk protein allergy to see if switching to a different formula would be helpful. Um, that's something that we do see from time to time in, in the young infants. And when, and when you're dealing with something like that, um, it's important to get the help of a professional because when you start to pull um, a baby's only source of nutrition away, you know, concern for allergies, um, you can do harm to the baby over time. And are these food or animal allergies actually inherited where mom and dad might have had them? I think there's a, there's a, you can inherit a tendency toward allergies, but I don't think that, you know, it's as simple as mom was allergic to dairy, so baby is definitely going to be allergic to dairy. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. It, it is true, though, that in families who have allergic tendencies, um, they, they do um, tend to get handed down from generation to generation. I've got you. And uh, any other thoughts about that? My, my sense has been that many times people come in, patients come in, and they're worried about food and animal issues when it's really something else. So we always keep a very open mind. I agree with the uh, uh, person who wrote that email that it's difficult. So we'll catch you after the break. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from you, our listeners. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. News you can trust in radio built around you. Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And we have another email question that I'm going to read about poison ivy in children in just a second. But before I do that, we really do want to hear your voices. Call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. So, Julie, do children get poison ivy? Well, of course they can. Over um, repeated exposures, anyone can be sensitized to poison ivy. 
And um, it's important if you're an outdoors person, which most of us are in this state, to have an idea of what poison ivy looks like. It's a three-leaved um, plant, and those leaves can be any color. They can be dull in appearance or shiny, green or red. And the outside leaf on either side is notched like a mitten. So if you can kind of teach yourself to look for it, you can do avoidance. And Stephanie, if a child came in with what they thought was poison ivy, what would be some characteristics of the rash that would help you determine if it really is poison ivy? Well, first, I would want to add that if if you're concerned that your child has been exposed to poison ivy, make sure that you do a thorough washing of the skin. So get a you know a really good soap and really wash that skin off because the the agent that actually causes the um, the, the skin rash is an oil that's found in the leaves. And so you don't want that substance to spread on the skin any further. Um, in terms of remedies for poison ivy itself, um, you know, we can use topical steroids, so things like hydrocortisone. But um, in a lot of situations, you'll need something a little bit stronger that's prescription strength. And for um, some people, you even need a, a course of oral steroids. And for poison ivy, you have to, to treat for surprisingly long amounts of time. So just, you know, a, a quick two or three day taper of steroids usually doesn't do the trick. You usually need a, a couple weeks of, of the oral steroid. Um, we take poison ivy seriously, too, because sometimes... If you don't treat it adequately and people are rubbing and scratching, they get infected. What would be the approach if someone came in with infected poison ivy, Julie? Well, typically if it's a case of infected poison ivy, it's going to be fairly widespread. So one thing that we do, not only for infected poison ivy, but a lot of infected rashes such as eczema is we do bleach baths. And that's kind of an interesting little thing to note. We make it somewhat like swimming pool water. So you add a little bit of bleach to a big tub of bath water, and that helps to cut down on the amount of staph that lives on your skin and can help with infection. But then the next step would be topical antibiotic creams or ointments. And then sometimes you'd have to do an oral antibiotic as well. And then you had asked earlier about what the rash looks like. Um, and so with poison ivy, it, it, often you'll see um, little, um, like a rash that shows up in a line on the skin. And what that actually represents is where the plant streaked on your skin. So, you know, you rub up against a leaf and it leaves this sort of line right where it touched, touched you as you were walking through the woods or as you were bending over to pick something up. Um, and it, it generally shows up with redness. Obviously, it's quite itchy. And sometimes it will even start to form blisters on the skin. There are some preventive things. If you're sensitive to poison ivy and have had it in the past or your children are, there are some skin protectants you can put on like ivy block. And you put that on, a nice coating of that before you go out into the garden, go in and take a nice warm soapy shower, wash it off, and the amount of poison ivy you would get would be much less than it would be if you didn't have that protectant on. Of course, using gloves and long sleeve shirt or other ways that you can try to prevent exposure. Make sure you wash those gloves and that shirt in the uh, laundry with hot water and that'll get rid of any residue that could be on the clothing that could wipe off onto your skin at a later time. Any other thoughts about poison ivy, Steph? You know, I think it's interesting. We always talk about poison ivy, but there's lots of other plants that you can develop allergies to. Um, so, you know, you might not have been exposed to, to poison ivy in particular, but there are lots of other things that you can become sensitized to and develop an allergy to. And one thing that we see um, quite commonly in the summertime is something called phytophotodermatitis, which is really fun to say, but it's not so fun to have it on your skin. So this is a problem where 
um, your skin is exposed to often it's a, a juice like a plant juice lime juice i would say is the most common one so the classic scenario is that you know you're you're drinking a margarita and you spill that on your arm and then as the sun hits that juice it sort of changes it and it develops into this um, rash that looks like drip marks going down the arm or the leg um, it can also be quite itchy and as it fades away it can leave behind a dark mark on the skin that can last for for quite some time even a few months so that's something to to be aware of you know if if you're getting into any kind of plant or if you get any kind of juice exposure on your skin, make sure you wash it off right away. Good advice. Now, let's just step back for a second. Um, Dr. Julie Wyatt, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? I am originally from Jackson, Mississippi, and grew up in Germantown, Tennessee as well, and then came back here, went to Mississippi College and then medical school at the University of Mississippi. How long have you been at the university? I have been there eight years. So wow. I finished residency at the University of Virginia and then moved back home to um, take care of Mississippians. And Stephanie Jacks, where are you from? So I've, I've lived all over the place. So I, I grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Um, I went to college in Nashville, Tennessee, and then I went out to Washington, D.C. to do my medical school. After that, I, I went to um, Ohio State University for my residency training and stayed on there at um, Nationwide Children's Hospital, which is also in Columbus, Ohio, to do my fellowship training. After that, I uh, came to the University of Mississippi, and I've been here practicing for about three years now. And I'm an Ohioan myself. This is Bob Brodell, and I grew up in Warren, Ohio, in northeastern Ohio. I'm a LeBron James fan and a Cavaliers fan. Go Cavs. And uh, I was 27 years in solo private practice in a small little country town in northeastern Ohio before I had the opportunity to come to Mississippi and uh, meet the wonderfully warm, nice people in Mississippi, where I've been for five years. It's been a dream being here. Now, we have another question by email, but please call us. We want to hear your voices. 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. This question says, My five-year-old daughter and my two-year-old son both have tiny bumps on their backs and on their upper arms. My son also has them over his legs. They aren't red or inflamed or blister-like. They're just tiny bumps, but they bug me. What do we think about that, Stephanie? So this is this is actually something I see in my clinic fairly commonly, and a lot of parents have questions about these bumps. So this is something called keratosis pilaris. And the way that I usually think about this is that you have little hair follicles all over your skin. And some of those follicles have a hair coming out, but some of those follicles are just empty, like an empty pore. And in some people, um, there's a tendency for those empty pores to get clogged up with dead, dry skin. And so what you're seeing there is basically little clogged pores with dead, dry skin in them. It's not harmful. It's not something that's ever going to you know, hurt your children, but it can be quite stubborn. And th unfortunately, there's really no cure for it. You can use special moisturizers that have just a little bit of a mild acid in them. And what that mild acid does is it helps to break down that thick, dead, dry skin. The, the biggest side effect that you can see from these moisturizers is that in young children, they might complain of some burning when you apply these moisturizers. The, the easiest one to find over the counter is called amlactin, and it has something in it called ammonium lactate. 
you're looking for a 12% ammonium lactate moisturizer. And you can apply that every day to help smooth out those bumps. Unfortunately, it's not a cure, though, so you have to keep applying that moisturizer in order to keep that skin smooth. And I often tell families that, you know, because this is not a problem, this is not a dangerous rash, it's okay to just kind of leave it. It's, it's more of a cosmetic issue than and anything else. they tend else. to grow out of it most times, don't uh, they? Yeah, a lot of the times around puberty, when the skin gets a little bit more oily and makes its own kind of natural moisture, then a lot of these bumps do get better. And we have Debbie calling in from Germantown, Tennessee. She wants to talk about vitiligo. You're on the air. Yeah, I was just wondering. I, I, I haven't found anything to do for it. Didn't know if there's anything new that could be done for it. The, the lack of pigment in your skin. And is this vitiligo that you have on your skin or one of your children? No, it's on me. I and got I'm you. in my sixties. Okay, Julie. Okay, Debbie. Um, so vitiligo is thought of, of as an autoimmune process where the cells in your skin called melanocytes stop producing the pigment that colors your skin. And we, uh, bottom line is we are not great at treating it. Um, importantly, you need to understand that perhaps your body's trying to tell you something. If you have vitiligo going on, you, also thyroid disease is something that should be considered as well as in rare cases, um, an what, anemia. What, what disease? I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Th- thyroid so, well, so, I, yeah, I do. I'm on thyroid medication. And, and it came, matter of fact, I had a girlfriend. We were having dinner one night, and she said, Honey, you need to get your thyroid checked because you're losing pigment. And she gave you good out. advice, <laughs> yes. So we do see those two things um, travel together oftentimes. And in rare cases, I was going to say also anemia can also um, travel without it, kind of an autoimmune-induced anemia. Um, so we do different things. We use topical steroids um, as well as calcineurin inhibitors, which are things like um, Protopic and Elidel are the trade names. And we'll use those in combination um, as topical therapies. And they work about 50% of the time, not as effective as I would like. Um, also, you can use a type of light therapy. We actually shine a, a wavelength of light on your skin to try to get the pigment back. Um, and there are a couple of new things on the horizon. Um, tofacitinib is a new agent that shows some promise in treating vitiligo, but it also has, you know, you know a host of side effects, of prominent side effects. So um, biggest thing is if you're fair-skinned, to try to really protect your skin from the sun so that you can camouflage it a little bit more. And, of course, if you have a darker skin type, um, may, we, you'd probably be a little bit more aggressive in trying to treat it because it is, is so cosmetically dysfunctional for people. One of those lights is called X-Track Laser, and we have one at our university, many universities, and some dermatologist offices will offer that. That can be effective for some people. None of these things really represent a cure. And the medicines that we have, which are just on the horizon, are unfortunately very, very expensive. So we have to figure out a way to cut down that price before it's really going to be ready for prime time. Now, we have Jean from Mobile, Alabama, who wants to talk about some hair loss issues. Yes, uh, I have a condition called folliculitis, and uh, it takes your hair out. It itches like crazy. And I've been to a dermatologist once, and uh, well, a couple of times, and they gave me shots to stop the itching, but nothing to prevent the hair loss. Do you know of anything? Because I've tried a number And you're one of the older children. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, um, we will take questions from anybody about anything, and that's fine. Stephanie, any thoughts about that? So the hair loss is is on your scalp. It's limited to your scalp? Yes. 
Uh-huh. And but you also get some itchy red bumps on your scalp. No, I don't get the itchy red bumps, just itching, period. Just itching, period. But there's no actual rash there. No, uh-uh. So I, I, th- I think it's a little bit harder to... Hair loss is one of those things that can have many, many potential causes. And I really think that's one thing where it's very valuable to have someone who's doing a thorough examination of your scalp. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard to look at your own scalp, even if you have a, a good mirror system there. It's, it's really hard to get a good look at it. And so it, it would be probably valuable to have a physician help you look. And sometimes in our clinic, when we, uh, you know, are struggling with figuring out the cause of, of hair loss, um, particularly in um, adults and older people, we sometimes even do a little skin biopsy so that we can look mm-hmm. at that um, under the microscope and try to help figure out what's going on underneath the skin. It really makes a difference if there's bacteria in that hair that's inflamed or perhaps yeast or maybe something called Demodex. So uh, you're back to your dermatologist, maybe a biopsy, and we'll see if we can get that figured out. And with that, we're off to a break. Make sure you're ready to call us back at one eight seven seven mpb ring one 672 Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. On Creature Comforts, we talk about Mississippi's abundant wildlife with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and a special guest each week. Also, Dr. Troy Major is on hand to answer questions about your pets. I'm Kevin Farrell. Join us Thursday mornings at 9 with a repeat broadcast Saturday mornings at 6 for Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at one mpb ring that's one 672 7464 You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Well, it looks like we hit the right button. The calls are lining up now. Let me introduce myself. This is Bob Brodell. I have with me Julie Wyatt and Stephanie Jacks. We're all dermatologists at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And let's take a call from Ryan in Wiggins. Hi. I was uh, calling in response to the lady that called about the keratosis pilaris, the little bumps on her children. 
if she wanted an all-natural, over-the-counter remedy, not cure, remedy for the bumps, she could try um, all-natural goat milk soap or goat milk lotion, and that really helps to, to dissolve the, uh, the buildup under the skin. Stephanie, what do you think about that? You know, that's certainly worth a try that I, I haven't had a lot of people come in and, and tell me about that, it, you know, as being used as a remedy, but it may be that there's some lactic acid or, you know, like I was talking about those mild acids that could help to right. dissolve some of that, uh, that thick, dead, yeah. dry skin. So certainly yeah, a, a, really worth trying. my daughter. Yeah. Which, Ryan, you bring up a good point is that keratosis pilaris is a marker for an eczema tendency or an allergic tendency. So when you tend to have that type of skin, any kind of mild um, cleansers and moisturizers can help it as well. Yeah, and it's really important. Um, I think she needs to know, don't scrub the skin because mm-hmm. that can make it worse. It just yeah. irritates it, yeah, yes. Definitely. Good point. Yeah. Can't scrub okay. those little things off. you got to just work at them over a long period of time. Thanks for yeah. your nice call. And now, Marty and Jackson. Hi. I have a question that can span from pediatrics to adulthood. Our uh, youngest daughter is um, very, very susceptible to bug bites. We used to laugh and think that she attracted bugs wherever she goes. And it kind of hit its um, uh, hit the highest point when she was a freshman at Millsaps and was sitting in the, the pool there one day with some friends and came home and looked like she'd been attacked by uh, violence, and apparently it was a bunch of fleas that she'd set in a flea bed. But she has a real intense localized reaction. She doesn't have any pleasing or anything like that. And so the other day, she uh, she's now in her 20s and was walking down the street and got stung by a wasp, and it produced a huge, huge reaction on her calf probably standing almost from her ankle to the bend of her knee and around both sides of the calf. Julie, what do you think about that? So, you know, you can get a hypersensitivity reaction. That's just an intense allergic reaction to many types of bites. And um, does she always get it to fire ants? I mean, is that... Uh, not to fire, not necessarily to fire. So it's just ants. different insects. Any type of bug bite. Mm-hmm. And what we do to treat bug bites is we can use topical steroids, or sometimes if it's severe, like she mentions with a wasp, sometimes you have to use systemic steroids as well. But the biggest thing is just to try to prevent the um, interaction, which is challenging in Mississippi when we have a lot of mosquitoes, fire ants, um, and I know that some allergists will actually do um, allergic. Um, treatment so where they expose you to tiny little bits of the actual venom from the fire ants to desensitize you to it and probably for bees and wasps as well so stephanie how do we prevent bug bites well you know there's no way to actually prevent a bug bite once it's already there but i i do think in that situation when you have someone who is very sensitive to bug bites um kind of in a non-specific way you know just anything that bites them they get a big reaction it might be worth taking a little allergy medicine every day just to kind of um provide an antihistamine effect and make you a little less sensitive to those insect bites so you can get allergy medicines over the counter like cetirizine or loratadine and just take the 10 milligram kind of standard dose of that every day and it may just help make you a little less reactive to the bites. and what about insect repellents what about deet 
Yeah, so, um, you know, that that is another area of controversy. People have have worried that, um, you know, that these insect repellents might be um, toxic when um, children are exposed to them. But the American Academy of Pediatrics actually supports the use of DEET um, just because we feel that the the risks are quite low um, when you compare it to the risks of actually getting stung by an insect which might carry a disease or, you know, expose your child to something far more dangerous. And so... Um, we do support the use of, of DEET in those insect repellents. And there are lots of children repellents out there that have low concentrations mm-hmm. of DEET. And to my way of thinking of this, nothing works better than DEET insect repellent. So I use it a lot in my patients too. Julie? And I believe that in children, it's safe to use up to 30% DEET. Isn't that correct? I think that's right. And that brings us, anything else there, Marty? I guess my biggest concern is if this is not something that is going to develop into a full-blown systemic allergy for her, she doesn't need to have an EpiPen with her or anything. If this is just a, a localized type reaction. It would be very unusual when you have these local reactions to develop a widespread anaphylactic reaction. It's not absolutely, totally impossible, but it would be very unusual. Okay. That's the mom. Listen, thank you all so much. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. And now Claudette from Georgia. She wants to talk to us about some skin stuff. Claudette? It looks like we lost Claudette. So let me ask another question. One of the uh, emails came in and said, their children would like to know what does it take to become a dermatologist? Julie? Julie? So if you'd like to be a dermatologist, um, you typically like to treat um, patients of all ages, both children and adults, which is what um, a general dermatologist does. But you finish high school and then you go to an undergraduate program for four years and you can major in whatever uh, subject you'd like. And then you would choose to go to medical school for four years. And after medical school, you would do a general year of medicine or pediatrics. And then you would do three years of dermatology. Wow, that seems like a lot of years, Dr. Wyatt. Is that like 12, 13, 14 years? Plus. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of years. And Stephanie, do you like being a dermatologist? I do. And I'll say if, if you want to be a pediatric dermatologist, there's one more year of training that you do <laughs> called a fellowship. And so that's an extra year where you get um, exposure to taking care of lots of different kinds of skin diseases in children. But I, I do love my job. I think I have the best job there is. Well, I like it, too. So all you parents out there with your kids huddled around you right now, you let them know they should be a dermatologist. And now we have Ann from Jackson with a call. Uh, no, she hung up. Oh, we lost Ann, too. So any other thoughts about uh, skin disease and kids from my panel here today? Anything else we've missed that we better talk about? Maybe acne? One other thing I was going to add before acne is that I think um, I had a mom that I know personally who texted me and said, my daughter says there's a safe tanning bed that she can go to and get a safe tan. Uh Is she she lying to me? And I said, actually, she's pulling one over you. Any tan in your skin is a reaction to UV damage. It's your body's um, response to that UV damage to protect the skin. So if your kids are telling you that the tanning bed's safe because they can get a base tan or a safe tan, and I know some adults believe this as well, um, there is no such thing as a safe tan. And with that, I'd like to thank everyone that called in today. We've had a lot of fun, and we'll have a dermatologist back in a week or two also. Great seeing everybody from Southern Remedy with Rick DeShazo.